This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 408. This podcast episode is brought to you by Sidekick. Sidekick's muscle scraping tools keep your muscles healthy by improving blood flow, helping you treat your running injury faster so you can get back to doing what you love. Go to SidekickTool.com and use the promo code MTA to save 15% off your order. That's SidekickTool.com. Use the code MTA for 15% off. Thanks to MetPro Nutrition Coaching for sponsoring the podcast. You can speak with a metabolic expert about your goals and get actionable steps towards fueling for performance, losing weight, adding muscle, or changing your body composition. Go to metpro.co forward slash MTA to get $500 off their concierge coaching. That's metpro.co forward slash MTA. And finally, thanks to Ola Dance Open Earbuds. They have 360 degree superior sound, but they never enter the ear, so there's no ear fatigue. Plus, you'll never lose track of what's happening around you while you run. Visit oladance.com and use the code MTA20 for 20% off. That's oladance.com. Use the code MTA20. Hello and welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, helping long-distance runners conquer the marathon since 2010. In this episode, we speak with Olympian Kara Goucher about her new book, The Longest Race. It's a personal memoir and an inside look at one of the biggest scandals to rock the running world. Plus, you'll hear about what inspired Kara to dream of going to the Olympics, how she made the jump from track to the marathon, her training as an elite runner, and her passion for the sport. And to get access to all of our back podcast episodes, including every guest we've ever had on the show, you can access the Academy Podcast Vault as a member, along with all the other goodies we have in there. Find out how to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Well, we are so excited to have Kara Goucher on the podcast. We've been wanting to speak with her for forever, it seems like. We were telling her that we had her husband, Adam Goucher, on the show like 10 years ago. So we were really excited to be able to have this interview right as her book's coming out and be one of the first podcasts that she's appearing on. So we're going to get right into that after we give some shout outs to folks in the community like we love to do here. Angie, what do you have for us? We'd like to give a shout out to Coach Antonio, who is on the MTA coaching team. He says, the Woodlands Half Marathon is perhaps one of the best races I've ever run. I finished in 130.26, which is 6.54 per mile, at the age of 59 with a lifetime PR. A nice bonus was a third place age group placing too. Awesome. And this is a nice email we got. It says, hi, Angie. I use the MTA 420 training plan and I achieved my goal at the Osaka Marathon. I was one of two or three people from India to participate and the experience was awesome. I've run Paris, Berlin, Helsinki, and Mumbai marathons in the past. And I must say that the Japanese are way ahead in terms of the management and participation. There was no place in the marathon where there was no crowd cheering the runners. Thanks to the MTA plan and the useful tips in your podcast, I was able to achieve my goal. Keep up the good work and best of luck for the future. I'm doing Chicago in October and look forward to running even faster. Thanks, Deepak. Wow, he really gets around. I would love to go to all those places. Thank you for sending in that race report. Glad to hear things went well for you at the Osaka Marathon. And yes, I've heard about the legendary organization at these Japanese races. Someday we will make it over to Japan and run a marathon or two. So looking forward to that. (laughs) That's right. And quick shout outs to a couple other people who ran races in Japan. Um, these two did Tokyo Marathon. Um, Scott recently earned his six star medal in Tokyo. He says, well, it wasn't pretty, but I finished the Tokyo Marathon in 2020. I was about to fly to Tokyo and you all know what happened next. Yeah. And anyone out there listening, they might not know if you run all the world majors, you get a six star medal, one for each world major. Speaking of that, Lynn in our audience We actually have met her at the Boston Marathon. She now has two six stars. That's right. She says, Trevor and Angie, good morning from Tokyo. I did it. I got my second six star medal. It's been a very long and tedious journey, but I accomplished my goal. 
I've been injured and did not run for four weeks. My left knee locked up on me and I couldn't put any weight on it. Although my doctors advised me to cancel the marathon, I said that if I can walk to the airport, I will go. I had extensive chiropractor and acupuncture two weeks before the race and I didn't run at all. I iced it every day and I'm so happy and relieved that I finished the marathon. I couldn't believe it. I cried when I had two kilometers to go. They have very strict checkpoints. I was checking it every 5K and I was able to beat the checkpoints by at least 30 minutes. She says, thank you for all your help and encouragement. I do have what it takes to do a marathon and change my life. And in Lynn's case, <laughs> hundreds of marathons. <laughs> yeah, she's run a ton. I'm sure there's not many people on earth who have two six-star medals. They've done all the world majors twice. Yes, that is a huge accomplishment. Well, we're going to jump into our conversation with Kara Goucher. She's a three-time NCAA champion, a two-time Olympian, and she's a podium finisher at the Boston Marathon and New York City Marathon. She ran for an elite training group called the Nike Oregon Project which you're going to hear about uh, in this conversation. Her book is called The Longest Race, Inside the Secret World of Abuse, Doping, and Deception on Nike's Elite Running Team. It is a bombshell book. <laughs> we were really just lucky to have her publisher send us a copy. We've never had to sign so many non-disclosure agreements uh, before a guest has been on our show. Like We could not leak anything from this book before the release date and... We were one of the first podcasts that had her on as a guest to talk about the book, so we're just really blessed. And she was just as warm and wonderful as I expected her to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Minnesota nice. Kara is currently a running analyst for NBC Sports. She currently lives in Colorado with Adam, who's also a former professional athlete and part of the Nike Oregon Project. And for a little bit of context before we get into this conversation, uh, we just thought we'd cover a few things. Uh, right off the bat, she's going to talk about an Alter G treadmill, which I've never actually seen one in real life, but they look pretty awesome. Angie, what is an Alter G? It is an anti-gravity treadmill that contains NASA patented technology. So it allows you to reduce your body weight by as much as 80%. So as you can imagine, this would be really helpful for rehabbing and training through injuries especially for professional runners. Basically, you put on a pair of these specialized shorts that attach to what looks like an inflatable structure surrounding the treadmill deck. Can't imagine how much they cost. Yeah, I'm definitely cost prohibitive for the average person. We don't have one in our basement. But I know a lot of rehab facilities do have them, probably some college programs. Um, and so I'm sure there's places where you can go and rent time on them. Okay, she also mentions the Foot Locker National Cross Country Championships. Like Foot Locker is like the Super Bowl of cross country. For high school runners, yeah. It's a 5K cross country event that is held annually in San Diego's Balboa Park for high school runners. Uh, basically, the top 10 male and female runners from each region, there's four different regions, are invited to the national championships. Some winners that people might recognize include Molly Seidel in 2011, Jordan Hesse in um, 2005 and 2008, Dathan Ritzenheim in 1999 and 2000, Sarah Hall in 2000, of course, she was Sarah Bay back then, and Adam Goucher in 1993. Unfortunately, there are a lot of high school runners, particularly females, that win Foot Locker, but then struggle with injuries and so forth during college. So there's a book about that called How She Did It by Molly Huddle and Sarah Slattery. We had them on the podcast last year, and they talked a lot about you know why the sport has in the past struggled to help these female runners transition to college into professional careers. Yeah, there's something called the Foot Locker Curse. Yep. So, you know, if you ever run across that in the running world, that's what it is. She's also going to mention the USADA, USADA, which is the United States Anti-Doping Agency. And then, of course, the Nike Oregon Project. Real quick, Angie, what was that? It was an elite training group created by Thomas Clark of Nike in Beaverton, Oregon. And it was coached by Alberto Salazar. Um, basically, Clark was unhappy with U.S. distance running results after there being few top performances by American runners in a couple of decades. And so the training project started in 2001 and was closed in 2019 after an investigation resulted in the ban of Coach Salazar. Yep. Angie, real quick, let's share who is Alberto Salazar. He's an American distance runner who won three consecutive New York City marathons um, in 1980, 1981, and 82. 
He also won the 1982 Boston Marathon, which is known as the famous Duel in the Sun, uh, where he and Dick Beardsley were battling it out on a super hot day in Boston. Alberto set American records in the 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters. And in 1994, he won Comrades Marathon in South Africa and then retired from running. He later went on to coach the Nike Oregon Project. In 2015, he was named in an investigation into doping allegations. In 2019, Salazar was banned for four years from athletics for doping offenses involving the athletes that he coached. Um, That resulted in the Nike Oregon Project being shut down in the wake of the controversy. And then in 2020, the United States Center for Safe Sport placed Salazar on its temporarily banned list while it investigated allegations against him involving sexual and emotional misconduct. And they permanently banned him a year and a half later in 2021 after it found that he had committed four violations involving emotional and sexual misconduct. He appealed the ban in arbitration but lost, making him permanently ineligible for any activity held by the United States Olympic Paralympic Committee or any sport recognized under the national governing body. And we will say that Alberto Salazar continues to deny any wrongdoing in this. So Kara has now come out with this book and she is telling her story. She's one of the victims of the sexual abuse. And we're not really going to get into all those details. Definitely go get the book. It's a page turner. You won't want to put it down. I think Angie like read it in a day. I did literally. (laughs) Well, one reason is because we only had like a day before. They sent it to us and then boom, the next day we had to interview her. But No, they sent it to us. I think like we got it on a Friday night and then we the interview was Monday. So yeah. But it, literally, it was so good that I couldn't put it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In this conversation, we really want to just focus on Kara as a person, on her career, her thoughts about what it was like to go from the track to running a marathon. Of course, we do talk about um, doping and actually like w- how prevalent that is in the sport at the elite level and how it happens. Without further ado, here is Kara Goucher. Got burned, but I learned our scars make us who we are now I'm ten feet tall over my demons Remind me no one's got me like myself Yeah, I love me without any help I'm the best thing to believe in So I'm bringing out the fight, yeah, bring on all the lightning Cause I Okay, we're on the podcast now with Kara Goucher, author of The Longest Race. Kara, welcome to the MTA podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Off mic, I was just talking about how I'm such a fangirl. I started distance running in 2007. And so like you were one of the first people I kind of started following in the running world. And you've just been hugely inspirational to me. One of the things we always like to ask guests is how they got started as a runner, because everyone's story and the journey is so different. Um, So maybe you could talk about that a little bit and talk about who were some of your early influences as you continued running through middle and high school. And Yeah, well, my grandpa, Papa, he got me into running. He took me to my first race and he was a lifelong runner. Actually, this is Mm -hmm. kind of funny. This isn't in the book, but when he was in his 80s, he ran on an Alter G And he called me and he was like, Kara, I just ran on this thing. Like, you have to try. I was like, yeah, Papa, I know I've been running on one for like five years. Um, But he just loved the movement. And he's the one that got me into it. He took me to my first race. And he loved to tell this story. I mean, the people at the retirement community would literally roll their eyes. My grandma would too, because she's like so tired of hearing this story. But that, you know, he's the reason I'm an Olympian because he brought me to my first race. And I fell and he thought I would be upset and said I was like, everyone's getting away from us. And he was like, for the first time, he realized I was competitive, right? Mm -hmm. I was always really shy and stuff. So he got me into running and I just looked up to him so much my whole life. And he loved running and he, he wasn't a racer, which I think is kind of interesting. He really ran for mental health and to feel better. And we bonded about that a lot later in life, just the feeling you get from running. But he got me into it. And it's not like I ran a lot. Like my son's actually on a team. Um, I just would run local races or if I was out at the cabin and he was going to do a short run, I would run with him like in my kids and everything. Uh, (laughs) And then, yeah, in seventh grade, I found out like it's like a sport that you can do. And that's how I got into more competitive running. 
So you, you were talking about in the book, like your sisters had different sports. I mean, your family was very active, but you found like running was your thing. There was really no one in the family who was doing that. And so you experienced some success and felt driven in that. Um, and so middle school, high school, you know, who are the people that you looked up to in those beginning years? Um, I was super lucky to have an awesome coach who coached me for six years. He cultivated this team environment that was everybody matters. Mm. And so I feel so lucky that I had teammates that were invested in my success because it helped the team's success. And then I was invested in their success. Honestly, I'm still friends with the girls on my cross-country team. We get together once a year at someone's house, or this past year we actually left so that nobody had to do any mom duties or anything <laughs> yeah. when we went to Arizona. Um, but I feel so lucky. I really looked up to my teammate, Amy Hill, who's now Dr. Oldenburg. She just right away started running well at the high school level, even though she was only in seventh grade. And then as I started to follow the sport a little bit more, I was always obsessed with the Olympics. So I knew Carl Lewis, Jackie Joyner, Kersey, Flojo. I had their pictures in my bedroom. My sister would give me anything running related. But it really wasn't until I saw Lynn Jennings running the 10,000 meters at the 92 games. That was the first time I thought like I made a connection because, mm. you know, I can't sprint and I can't jump. <laughs> I can't throw anything. <laughs> so I worshiped all these other people, but I didn't really relate to them. I just like loved them. But that was mm -hmm. the first time I thought like, wow, I wonder if that could be me sometime. Mm. Wait, how old were you when you were thinking that? I was 14. Wow. And I think it is, it's almost like you have to kind of relate to people on a certain level and like start to claim it for yourself, at least the dream initially, even though the road is still uncertain. Yep. Um, how did you navigate a world where your self-worth is often linked to your weight and your performance? It was hard. I had a high school teammate who had a very severe eating disorder and she was mm. in and out of the hospital. So I saw it really young. And then I went to Foot Locker National Cross Country Championships a couple times, and I saw a lot of those behaviors there. My girls on my high school team, like we made this pact, we were going to eat and we were going to be healthy. But when I went to college and I didn't have that support system anymore, and I was looking around who's winning the NCAA, like nobody has to tell you even you should lose weight, right? Like mm. you see it and it's been modeled for me. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely had some issues in college because the seeds had been planted for so long and I lost, I mean, I had great collegiate teammates, but I lost those girls that were like, like we would literally make Twizzlers into saying food rules and take a picture and then eat it all. You know, I lost those girls, like they weren't with me anymore. So I think our sport, it's everywhere, but it starts a lot younger than we want to admit. And it, it is a tough sport. Even when you're looking at professional athletes, they are lean and mean. And it's hard as a kid, you see that or a teenager or whatever as like, look how lean they are. I have to get skinnier. But the reality is their bodies over time have developed into that and they don't look like that all year round, right? Mm. So yeah, I struggled with an eating disorder like a lot of people. I was, again, really lucky that my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, would have like none of it. And then I even went home and my mom, you know, was like, I'm worried about you. This is getting out of control. And my college coach, Mark Wetmore, also pulled me aside and said, this is going too far. So I was lucky to have people that were looking out for me and helped me get it under control before I lost control of it. Yeah. There's an anecdote in the book where Adam offers you a Dorito chip <laughs> Yeah, and you just didn't want to eat the chip. You really had a struggle. No, with, I did like, not want to eat it. But he, he was like, just have a chip, just have a chip. And I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Even though I was not fine. I was about to pass out. I was so hungry. We're talking one chip, not a bag of chips. No, no, no. A chip. And then he actually said, eat the Dorito. And I remember being like, oh, I have to eat the Dorito. Like he's watching me. And I hated every moment of it. But that was sort of the beginning of turning things around because Adam ate like a normal person. He ate when he was hungry. He never measured anything. He didn't count calories. I mean, I was like counting calories on the side. So that one Dorito, it was horrible, but that was actually the beginning of a shift um, because he ate normal and he was the best runner in the United States. Mm -hmm. So it really started to, I started to wake up to, you have to feel your body, but it's really, really hard. And one thing I also, on this topic, I feel like a lot of times we'll say, well, they have a lot of eating disorders or this or that. And we kind of shame them. Nobody wants to have an eating disorder. It's horrible. You think about it all the time. It's all you can think about. And so I don't ever want to shame anyone who has an issue. I just want to say, it's really hard and I, I get it and I feel for you and hopefully you'll overcome it. 
Right. Yeah, well said. So you have that pressure that you put on yourself, and then sometimes the environment makes it even worse because you have coaches who say things and you have systems, you know, coaching systems, I guess, designed by men and for male athletes that don't take into account the needs of females and female physiology. And we have a whole culture that's based around, you know, ideals of female beauty, the cult and of beauty, right? Weight standards and all of that. So I guess we'll get right into it here. The subtitle of the book is Inside the Secret World of Abuse, Doping and Deception on Nike's Elite Running Team. Of course, we're talking about the Oregon Project. So yeah, I'm curious, like what it was like to be invited to join the team, because at the time, you know, you're out of college and like, it's a very uncertain world, you know, to make it as a professional runner. Seems like a dream opportunity of a lifetime. A hundred percent. That's exactly what it was. Um, I had been struggling. I had told Mark Wetmore, my college coach, he had been coaching me. I couldn't stay healthy. I was like, I have to try something new. Adam was in the same boat. Like he was like, I, we have to try something new. We didn't have kids. And we started traveling around and talking to other coaches. We went to Wisconsin. But when Alberto called and flew us out there, this was something I had never seen before. The Oregon Project was, it really was groundbreaking. It was professionalizing distance running and making sure you have body work, um, ART therapy, massage therapy, PT, any kind of equipment you could ever imagine, whether it's an Alter-G or an underwater treadmill or a cryosana when those came, like everything was accessible to you. And so to be honest, he really wanted Adam, not me, but I was just sort of like part of the deal. Um, <laughs> so as the first woman on the team, but you know, I remember being there and talking to Dan Paff, who was only there for a few months, but I, I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And he's like, what are you afraid of? And the truth was, I was afraid that if I went there where I had everything at my fingertips and I didn't make it, I had to accept I wasn't as good as I dreamt I was, right? Mm. So it was a little mm. scary to go, but it was an opportunity of a lifetime. And I had never seen anything like it. There was like a Nike house. It was all at altitude, like uh, less oxygenated air being pumped into the house, two underwater treadmills in the backyard, a table inside the room for constant body work. I mean, it was just someone who had been injury prone. It felt like maybe this can save me and bring me back from the dead, which essentially it did. And we're talking about like Nike campus, unlimited funds Nike has. This is like the, the Caesars palace of a running and training facility, right? Yeah. Like my, I had a locker in the Lance Armstrong fitness center. That's where I went every single day to drop off my stuff. Then I would go run on Ronaldo Field or the Bow Field or the Michael Johnson track, which has a forest in the middle. Then we'd go back to the Lance to lift. Eventually, we had our own private organ project area in the Lance where we could get massage, where we had the cryotherapy, where we had an Alter G. I mean, like anything you could think of was there. And it wasn't like a drive away or I have to go visit this place because I need therapy. It was just like, get out of the car, park the car, walk in, and everything you want is there. Hmm. And the idea was that an American had won the Boston Marathon in, in forever to revive American yeah. prominence in the... I believe they had been watching um, Alberto and maybe Tom Clark had been watching the Boston Marathon and uh, there was an American in the top 10 and people were going crazy and they were like, why are we celebrating this? Like, we want more. So it was started in 2000 and there was some success. Dan Brown made the Olympic team in 2004 in two events, the marathon and the 10,000 but it hadn't achieved the heights they had wanted. And so part of the allure for us was like, we were the first NCAA champions that had been recruited to this team. And if these other athletes are successful, what could we do, right? I mean, it was, it was an incredible opportunity. And of course, there were some sour things along the way, or there would be no book. Um, but there was also a lot of excitement and good things as well. So you experienced a really devastating loss of your father at a young age, and then you had a really tough relationship with your stepfather. Do you think those wounds kind of set you up to be looking for that stable father figure and, you know, kind of start mistrusting yourself and your own intuition when it came to being coached by Alberto? Definitely. My dad died when I was young. Mm -hmm. My mom was remarried for 10 years to someone who did the best he could, but who was a little bit... Um, had a temper, which made me not afraid, but always a little tense. I hate conflict. I hate it so much. Mm. I still do. Mm. Um, and I think I was always looking for that person. And the first year there, I didn't get that from Alberto. You know, it was like, he's just a nice guy who wanted to help me. 
But definitely from 2006 on, he took a much bigger role in my life. And he called himself a father figure. And he Mm. would call my mom and tell her that he loved me like a daughter. And so a thousand percent because that coach line had been blurred to also feel like my like a father figure an actual father mm-hmm. figure i think looking back that was very unhealthy and it it made things that happened it it made me excuse them away over and over and over again because i i literally loved him as a father mm-hmm. so looking back now do you think there were warning signs like do you think some of that was by design to get you to trust him more and yeah it makes me sad i've been in a lot of hearings and testifying where people say I was groomed. And it makes me sad because mm-hmm. I do I do believe that Alberto cared about me a lot. And I think he's just a complicated person. Um, mm. I know there was a part of him that did 100% love me like a daughter. Um, but unfortunately, there were lines that were just crossed. So mm. I don't know that he came in it with this manipulative plan. Um, but definitely my insecurities were capitalized on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. Quick break to thank our new episode sponsor, Sidekick. We are so excited to have them as a sponsor of the podcast. When they reached out to us, I was like, hey, we actually have your tool and we've been using it. We have one of their tools. We have the Sidekick bow. Yeah, exactly. They have more than just one thing. <laughs> um, I actually got it a couple of years ago when I was struggling with a chronic hamstring issue. And I had been to the physical therapist and they were using similar tools on me. And, you know, they said there are things you can do at home that are very similar that can help you recover from this injury. And so I ordered the Sidekick bow. I've used it a lot. I love it. And I believe in it. Sidekick develops recovery tools for runners so you can heal from your injury quicker and get back to doing what you love. So if you're suffering from plantar fasciitis, shin splints, IT band tightness, knee pain, this muscle scraping therapy will help to break up the blocked vessels and heal that stressed tissue in your body. So take control of your injury and recovery. Go to SidekickTool.com. And hey, you can get 15% off your order with the code MTA. That's SidekickTool.com. Use the code MTA for 15% off. Thanks also to Oladance Wearable Stereo. Angie, are you still loving your Oladance? Ah, uh, yes, I am. I wear them every single day. <laughs> <laughs> She's not exaggerating. One of the major benefits of Oladance is that they're truly comfortable. They don't enter your ears, so you don't get that ear fatigue. They protect against hearing loss, and they're perfect for listening to whatever you want to listen, but they don't block out sounds that you need to hear in your environment, whether it's vehicles, your pets, your children. They've got a three times bigger dynamic driver, 360 degree, superior sound, perfect for people who listen to two hours a day of audio or more. Check out Oladance, Oladance oladance.com, O-L-A-D-A-N-C-E. Hey, and use the code MTA20 to save 20% off. Oladance.com, code MTA20 for 20% off. So during the first part of your professional career, you focused on the track. What distances did you run and what were some of your favorite achievements on the track? Because I know that was kind of your wheelhouse. (laughs) Yeah, I love the track so much. I still love it so much. Sometimes I think I moved to the marathon too soon, but I had run the... So I'm old. So we had the 3000 at the NCAA championships when I was in college. Hey, we're the same age, so we're not old. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, that was a thing. We ran it outdoors. Um, And people are always like, What? Uh, but yes, yeah, so we I loved the 3000 because I didn't have enough sprint speed for the 15, but the 3000 is basically like an extended 1500 where and so I really loved that event and then I moved up to the 5000 and I really loved that event too. But that was it. I didn't want to go any higher than that. And when mm-hmm. I started running for Alberto, he started talking about the marathon and I would always just be like I'm not going to run the marathon. I grew up volunteering at grandma's marathon. I've seen my aunt and uncle. They can't walk the next day. Like that is not for me, you know? Uh, But he kind of always was like hinting that that's where I would be best. He's the one that got me back into the 10,000. I had run one 10,000 before. That was a complete disaster. Like I actually walked during the race and he was the one that encouraged me to get back and like try again. And so, yeah, I really focused on the 5,000, 10,000, but I would race uh, 3,000 here if they had one, or I would run the 1,500 if I could get in because I obviously wasn't that good at it. So I raced a lot of different things. I even raced a few 800s, but really I was good at the five and the 10. <laughs> and the dream you had as a girl to be an Olympian came true. You competed in two Olympic games. So when it came to marathon training, 
I'm curious, like what was the training philosophy? I mean, I know you're probably running high mileage, right? Like hundred miles a week and or more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first marathon I ran was New York in 2008. And literally from my final of the 5,000 to the New York City Marathon was exactly eight weeks. And I think in a weird way, that was good because we, we didn't have enough time to overcook it and or for me to like really overthink everything. And I loved that training block so much. It No one else on the team was running the marathon. And I think my farthest run was 22 or 23 miles. So I still had a lot of fear of like, can I go those extra three or four miles? Uh, I had a lot of fear about it, but I loved the training block. And I remember being sad the night before the New York, New York City Marathon because I was like, it's over. Like I love mm. had loved these past eight weeks. Um, but yeah, it was 100 miles. So I had never run 100 miles a week before. So I basically took a week of cross training and relaxing after the Olympics then I went into five weeks at 100 miles and then two weeks tapering down and then I just went for it. Wow. <laughs> I trained a lot more for the marathons after that than I did the first one. Little as you know, that would be 100 miles would be your baseline and yeah. you would be like 135 <laughs> yeah. a week. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I thought 100 was like so much and then I started running for Schumacher and it was like 100 is nothing. But yeah. Your debut marathon was that when you finished, was it just as tough and miserable as you thought it would be? It was so hard. I can't even tell you. Like, <laughs> I was yo yoing about halfway through. Like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, Alberto said the first half would just go by in like a blink. And I was like, that's not happening. I'm feeling every step. And I was <laughs> oh, kind of no. yo yoing, letting the lead group break away from me. And then actually, this totally crazy thing happened where I thought of my dad and I attached myself back onto the lead pack. Mm. And then, but with like three miles to go, everything in my body started screaming at me and it kind of worked its way up. First, it was like my calves started screaming, then my hamstrings started screaming, then my back. Mm. And I kid you not, I didn't know the course that well. And I was like, I ha have to be done. I'm in so much pain and I was throwing up a little bit and I was like, this has to be oh. done. And I was looking for a place and I was less than a mile from the finish line. So thank God. <laughs> I didn't drop out, but it was really hard. Wow. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, as soon as I finished, I was like, I'm never going to do that again. And then of course, within 20 minutes, I was like, but, but what if I've hydrated better? And what if I train more? You know, we all yep. we're yep. crazy, right? We finished, we're like <laughs> never again. And then it's like literally 20 minutes later, you're thinking about like, well, if I had done this and done this and done that. So by the, that night I was ready to commit to another marathon. That mm. runner's amnesia kicks in. Oh, it's so quick. I mean, there's so many pictures of me like crying to Adam afterward. And I was like, that was so horrible. I hate it. And then, yeah, literally that night I was like, should I run Boston? So, <laughs> yeah. And you write about just how amazing the crowds are and the fan support, the course support. But then in the book, you write about how you're afterwards, after making it on the podium in Boston and in New York, your coach doesn't celebrate with you. He's just kind of like, I don't even know if you're good at running. Yeah, I, th I think the medal in Osaka, I won a medal at the World Championships in 2007 in the 10,000 meters. And it was sort of a blessing and a curse for Alberto and I, because I think that it just raised the level of expectations so much. Um, whereas when I won the bronze, everyone was like, oh my God, it, it was amazing. But then that sort of became the new standard that was expected. Mm. So New York, he was disappointed. He felt like I let Paula go and he actually changed his flight and flew home early. And then in Boston, you know, I didn't follow his race plan, which was don't take the lead till you turn on Boylston. And here's the thing I'll just say to athletes and coaches, if they're listening, you can plan as much as you want, but the athlete is in the moment and you have to trust your athlete to make the right choice. But it mm -hmm. caused me to be like, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? Instead of you know, I don't have a lot of racing regrets. I feel like I got everything out of myself, but that's a race I do regret because I was wrestling with, I really want to go, but it's so early. I don't know what to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. That takes a lot of mental and emotional energy. And when you're already pushing yourself physically so hard, that really can be draining. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I was like in my head so much and then finally I just couldn't take it. And I was like, mm -hmm. I'm going to go. And then I just took off and Honestly, I felt better immediately because I'd kind of been chopping my stride. <laughs> but then someone from the press truck, and I chose not to put their name in the book. <laughs> um, you're welcome. But um, <laughs> they told me that I was running really fast and I should be careful. And I kind of slammed on the brakes. And that's the regret I have. I don't regret taking the lead, even though that wasn't the race plan. My regret is that instead of just trusting my gut, which was saying, open it up, this is the mm -hmm. time. I slammed on the brakes and it created this little pack 
And then when it came time to kick, the legs just weren't there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I would have won. I probably still could have been third. But I, you know, I wish I trusted my gut. Mm. Might not be the first time someone on the course has messed up the <laughs> the ranking. Like the duel in the sun, the the bikes didn't get out of the way for Dick Beardsley. And Yeah. Have you ever watched video from that? Yeah. There, there are people are like in. Like I've never experienced that. Like I always ran on the rail because... I felt I could feel the energy. Mm-hmm. It would make Alberto nervous. It later on made Jerry Schumacher nervous, but I would run as tight as I could because I felt like I could take that in. But like they were behind a barrier. They weren't like coming in in our way. Mm-hmm. And that footage is crazy. The people just in the street while they're trying to outkick each other in a marathon. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness for the barriers now. Yeah, seriously. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the things we take for granted, like yeah. hydration, fueling stations, totally, all those things. crowd yeah. control. Crowd control. <laughs> so I remember I was pregnant with my youngest son at the same time you were pregnant with your son. And I really drew inspiration from you in the fact that you came back quickly, you returned to racing. And now, of course, reading your book, I realized that you didn't have a choice in that. Um, you know, Nike executives told you that your pay wouldn't be impacted by pregnancy and they used you for PR during your whole pregnancy. And then of course they suspend your pay. Without telling you. Yeah. Without telling me. I mean, it's just, it's just so maddening. I mean, you know, I know you're not the only Nike athlete or athlete in general that's dealt with this, but it's just so maddening to think about. Um, Can you talk about what that was like. You don't need any more stress when you're pregnant. And here you have all this like doubt swirling around about your livelihood. Yeah. Yeah. It was very stressful. And honestly, I took it very, very personally um, because this was a brand I was completely loyal to. And I thought I was in the Nike family and I thought that I always would be. And I took, you know, I did all the appearances they asked me to do, which was in over 20 during that time. They announced my pregnancy to the world. I didn't post ever on Facebook about it until this article ran, which was on Mother's Day when I was halfway through my pregnancy. So they were heavily involved with how my story was being told as a pregnant athlete. And, you know, it was my financial advisor that called was like, uh, you didn't get your quarterly payment. And at the time, I thought nothing of it. I thought, well, it's European Mm -hmm. racing season. Like Capriati's probably over in Europe and he hasn't been able to sign off on it. And so when my agent finally got a hold of them and said, you've been suspended and I don't know for how long, I was completely shocked. And I hate fighting and I hate (laughs) conflict, but I felt like it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I felt it was like the first time I really stood up for myself when I was a Nike athlete. And of course, it didn't go anywhere. Like I still ended up being suspended. But um, it really was the beginning of me questioning, do I want to represent something that I don't believe in has the same beliefs as me? But yeah, it was crazy because my picture was everywhere. Um, yeah. And a lot of it that was orchestrated by Nike, but I wasn't I was not being paid. So hypocritical of them. Mm, They're using you as a marketing asset. They're expanding the brand to women and to pregnant athletes with you as the face of it. Right. And then they don't pay you and don't even tell you. No, they don't even tell me. And then when I was meeting with different people from Nike, they would say, well, you know, we pay you to run, not do appearances. And I'm like, but actually appearances are in my contract. So it has to have some value or it wouldn't be in my contract. But also I was told, do what we ask you and this won't be an issue. And it was a big business learning lesson for me because they kept saying, well, I kind of remember that, but it's not in writing. But again, I thought that I was in this family Mm -hmm. and I didn't think I needed to get anything in writing. Alberta was telling me that I was fixated on money and I needed to just move on. And it was just a really icky, icky time in my life. But that is when I was I decided that I would not resign with Nike. And it was still years away, but I was like, my contract's up, I'm leaving. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So in a way, it was, you know, it was good because it kind of gave you that that impetus to take your power back. Yeah. But the fact that Nike still I don't know what the terminology exactly, but if you decided to sign with someone else, they could match that. They had like first option on you. Yeah, they had 180 <laughs> days to match any offer I had, or I had to just wait 180 days. So mm-hmm. when I did leave, fast forward, I was like, if I have to wait 180 days, I will wait 180 <laughs> days. I, you know, I had to get them to release me. And, mm-hmm. you know, they played games there too, waiting, and but then they finally did release me and I was free. 
I love the part of the book when you decide that you want to sign with Wazelle, you know, because you just really believed in that company and their, the brand and just what they were doing for women. You know, and then Nike has the option to match that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we can match the the Yeah, they're like salary. 20K, we got that. <laughs> but then you're like, and 2% of the company. <laughs> yeah. It was like such a coup there. It was, yeah. yeah, it was like, you can't match it. And I actually, this isn't in the book, but the sports marketing person from Nike said, well, I could pull their financials and I could match it, but... I'm going to let you go. It's clear this is where you want to be. And I was just like, whatever. I was, you know, I would have waited 180 days. And it's not even like this thing out of spite. It was just, we don't have the same values and I'm not going to resign with you. I just won't do it. It doesn't matter what amount of money you offer me. I'm not going to sign with you. And by that point, you had moved on from Alberto's coaching to Jerry Schumacher. So, you know, you had gotten away from the toxic abuse that Alberto, you know, had and that kind of that power that he had over you. But still, there was like that overarching, the Nike executives and this their whole culture that was really toxic. Yeah, I mean, I was still a Nike athlete. So mm-hmm. even though I wasn't with the Oregon Project anymore, all the people above me that I dealt with before were the same people. And, you know, I'm grateful that Jerry Schumacher took me on and that Chelaine allowed me to come. When I was trying to figure out what to do, when I said, I cannot do this anymore, I'm leaving Alberto. I mean, there's some big name athletes that you guys know of that said no, that I mm. could not join their team, which I understand. In the moment, it felt so hurtful. Wow. Um, but, in the end, it worked out because Jerry said he would coach me and Shalane said I could join the team. And I was grateful for that opportunity because at that time, I was a little bit, people questioned me, which I mm-hmm. didn't even realize until I started the whole process. So that was great that Jerry took me on. And then and then it was like I was able to just leave, leave, leave Nike mm-hmm. for good. Let's go back to the Alberto era for a second. Of course, he's got a lifetime ban from coaching in the US. You mentioned Nike had a building called the Lance named after Lance Armstrong. I'm guessing that has a different name now. Yeah, I think it's called the Sports Center. Um, And Alberto had a building as well, which the name was taken off uh, a few years ago. And I I don't know if it's been renamed either. Uh, I think they realized maybe this isn't the best idea. Now they're just kind of leaving the buildings. But How does doping work? How do athletes dope? What supplements or whatever are people using to cheat in, in marathons, for example? So I think when you're in the marathon scene or just the elite running scene or probably any endurance sport, there is like a process of climbing up the ranks, getting strength. You can't become a marathoner overnight because it takes years of of building your body up. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but in general, you see people go through the track, really build up, go through the 10K, build up more, and then they go to the marathon. So I think you can kind Mm. of see when someone comes out of nowhere you know, the media loves that because it's super exciting. But I think a lot of athletes feel like, uh, that's not how it works. So there's the big things, people who obviously blood dope, who are obviously taking EPO, things like that, that help them recover. So the EPO thing is it helps your body produce more red blood cells. So therefore you recover faster. So you can do, let's say in a seven day week, if you're a clean athlete, you can do one medium session and two hard sessions. But if you're recovering really well, you could get four hard sessions in a week. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the EPO makes you better as much as it's the way that it helps you recover. So you can train at a level that's not humanly possible. And Mm -hmm. so then you don't need to take the EPO when you're competing because you it's the workouts and all the work you were able to do, which is now helping you. Mm-hmm. So the, And then there's blood doping, which is the old-fashioned way, which is still around, as we know, where you take out your blood, save it, and then when you're trained and depleted, you put your fresh old blood back in. And that's what Lance was doing, right? That's what Lance was doing, yeah. Uh, He was also taking EPO and testosterone and (laughs) and everything. Yeah, yeah. He was also doing a lot of stuff, but that's like the old classic um, blood doping. But um, there's also testosterone, which helps you recover quicker. And people don't think how that would apply to endurance athletes. It's not because you want to get big and huge. It's like you take it after a hard session and you recover quicker. So Um, those are like the main things also HGH. But so for me, I believe that it's my opinion that my team that I was on the Nike organ project was microdosing with certain athletes, which means that you can be tested by the U S anti-doping agency from 6am to 11pm. But if you microdose, you just take a little amount, it can be 
in your system to where if you did get drug tested at 6 a.m., it's not going to trigger a positive. Mm. And But you're still getting the benefits. You're still recovering quicker. You're still sleeping deeper. And so that's what I believe was happening with the group I was with. Not flat out blood bagging it, you know, but little things that wouldn't create a positive test, but would create a lot of advantage. And when it comes to testosterone, some of it also can be applied topically, right? As a cream. Yeah. So Alberto had androgel. My husband and I would live with him when we would travel and he would have it out. I mean, it would be out in the middle of our condo. And this is the stuff where I look back and I just cringe because I, it shouldn't even be around an athlete. It's against the rules to have it even be around an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he told us it was for his heart and his health and I believed everything he said. So he's disputed. He used it on anyone. It is not disputed that it was there and that it was around us all the time. And that's another way you could microdose. You could rub it into someone um, and they would get a benefit without testing positive. And he was very interested in testosterone levels. He was always checking the boys, my husband included. I think there's an email in the book where he's worried about his testosterone levels. And so that was one particular hormone he was pretty interested in. Mm. And there's ways to get around cheating. I didn't know previous to reading this, right? Like was a saline IV or something that you can take? Yeah, so you can you're not allowed to have an IV unless there's a therapeutic use. For instance, you're super dehydrated or sick or something like that. But using IVs before competitions or after you have been doping, it flushes your body and hydrates it to a level where the concentration then in your blood is less. So uh, if you've read Tyler Hamilton's book, which is called The Secret Race, he talks about how you know they would give themselves IVs if they knew drug testers were coming because it would dilute the concentration in their blood. Look, I know way more than I ever wanted to know about this stuff. I used to be, <laughs> I used to be little and I'd be like, oh yeah, the the Russian whoever is our are doping and I'd pretend to take a pill and be stronger. I had no idea how any of this stuff worked. And it, you know, I learned more as I went through the sport, not necessarily in the organ project, but as I grew up through the sport more and more and start in red stuff and people would test positive. And it's a huge problem. It's a huge mm. problem mm. in our sport. And I, as sadly, I think it always will be. People are mm. always going to be willing to push the boundaries to win. And yeah. it's a problem. But we can keep knocking it off at the knees if we keep speaking up and if we see something, say something and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. How scary was it to come to these realizations that the endocrinologist that you were working with was also working with Alberto and bringing your medical records up to scrutiny and thinking like inadvertently, you know, you weren't trying to cheat. What if something was found? After I went to USADA, Adam and I together the first time, I told them, there's a possibility that he put testosterone on me. Mm-hmm. And I need to know if it's true because if it's true, it destroys everything I accomplish and I can't I can't live with it. Mm. And that was very hard. A lot of sleepless nights. I'm serious, just being so terrified that I was going to have to tell Papa and I was going to have to tell my mom and I was going to have to tell my grandma. Mm. Um and I had a hard time getting my medical records. You know, Dr. Brown wouldn't send them. Nike wouldn't send them. Finally, once they secured them, they were able to go through with them. And I remember just flat out asking the CEO of USADA, United States Anti-Doping Agency, saying like, did you find something? Because tell me and ban me. And he was like, that's not how it works around here. You know, if we found it, you'd be banned. So that was a huge relief for me because I carried that around for a while that Maybe I wasn't always clean. It was a horrible feeling. It was mm. such a horrible feeling. But I, I feel good about it now. And was that like the process of being able to speak up about things like that and about the abuse that you underwent? Because you did have that fear that you could lose everything that you'd mm. worked so hard for. Um, you know, kind of talk to listeners maybe, you know, who are going through something in their own life and they just think like, if I told the truth to people, then everything would be over. Like, how did you process that? Well, that fear is very real. I thought Mm -hmm. a lot of things will keep an athlete silent, a clean athlete that witnessed something. Mm -hmm. Your reputation is going to go through the ringer. And I knew that everything that I accomplished under Alberto, there are still people who believe I was cheating when I accomplished it. And that'll keep you silent because you know how hard you worked and you know everything you sacrificed to accomplish those things. Also, once you say something publicly – you know, when I first went to USAD, I was still a Nike athlete. And I was like, if Nike finds out I'm here, I'm dead. 
I will lose everything. Um, but they kept it quiet, which was awesome. But mm-hmm. when I finally started to speak about it publicly, they have such a strong hold over our sport that there were races that told me I wasn't welcome there. There were meet directors that would openly talk me on websites. And so it's really, really hard. Even people I thought were my friends would say she should give her medals back. She should, mm-hmm. you know, take herself out of the results. And all of that was awful. But the thing was that by staying silent, I felt like I was part of the problem. I was allowing it to continue. And that made me feel culpable. That made me feel like I'm part of the problem. I'm helping them screw athletes out of Olympic team spots and world championship spots. And so at the end of the day, it was more important that I wasn't a part of the problem anymore than people questioned me and my reputation. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it was easy. It was awful. But I sleep really well at night because I know I did the right thing. Hey, quick break to thank our sponsor, MetPro. These folks have been a godsend, just a longtime faithful sponsor of the podcast and a big help to Angie and I and many people in our community. A couple episodes ago, we had Parker Watson on the podcast. He was a client of ours, heard about MetPro, went over, got some coaching from them. They helped him lose 60 pounds of unwanted fat. So yeah, we really, really believe in the process. With their concierge coaching, they provide just a great high-touch service for you. I have a weekly call with Coach Megan, who I'm working with. They really try to make your nutrition goals fit into your daily life because it has to be something that you can do in your everyday life or you're not going to stick with it. Exactly. So check them out at metpro.co forward slash MTA. You can get a free call with them, see if it's a good fit for you. metpro.co forward slash MTA. If you tell them that we sent you you'll save 500 bucks on their coaching, metpro.co forward slash MTA. And quick word of thanks to our sponsor, AG1 by Athletic Greens. Following the latest science, they source every ingredient to the highest possible quality. AG1 is a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotic, probiotic, a green superfood. It also contains stress adaptogens and functional mushrooms and antioxidants, and it tastes good. I love the fact that they are constantly working to improve their formula. They've done 52 iterations so that you can get the most quality nutrition into your body in a really easy form. Um, Literally, I just fill up the handy shaker bottle that comes with your order in the morning, put the scoop of athletic greens in, drink it down. It just is a great way to get your day started. Just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. With your first purchase, you can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Athleticgreens.com slash MTA. I guess most recently, you know, you've had some struggles with your health. Maybe Angie, you can ask about the last question. Yeah. In 2021, you were struggling with your balance and were finally diagnosed with focal dystonia. Um, So for people who've never heard what that is, can you tell us about it and, you know, what you're doing to manage it so that you can continue doing what you love? Yeah. The first doctor that diagnosed me with it, I go, well, what is that? Like I had (laughs) never heard of it. You know, I was there for a couple hours. I'm crying. He's like, well, you might not run again, but don't worry, it won't kill you. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. That's basically death for me, you know? (laughs) Um, And he was super, super nice, but I just didn't even know what it was. So then Mm -hmm. Adam and I, we were down pretty far in Denver. So we were driving back to Boulder and I'm like Googling it and I keep writing dystopia because instead of dystonia, because I don't know what this is, right? It feels like dystopia though. (laughs) I was just like, what (laughs) is this? Um, And I was like, he's wrong. I don't have this. I don't have a neurological disorder. This is, but I stumbled across this runner's rule article that night and I was like, oh yeah, no, I have this. But then I still went and got a second opinion at the Mayo Clinic, which was pretty devastating because the doctor there was a bit harsher and was like, I think you need to be done running. This could spread through your body. You wouldn't be able to walk. Is that the life you want? And I was like, well, no. But he was a great guy. But he, mm-hmm. but the cool thing is my doctor here, Dr. Jill Olson, was like, he doesn't know you. Right. He doesn't know that you used to run 135 miles a week and like it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like he could have just Googled you. you know? <laughs> yeah, he did not know who I was, but that's fine. Um, but she was like, let's fight for this. Let's fight for what we can get back. So mm-hmm. it's been about a year now that I've been treated. I have been on a couple different Parkinson's medications, one which really has helped me, but also this is kind of embarrassing, but it causes brain fog. And one of my jobs mm-hmm. is to talk on live television. So I've kind of weaned myself from it, but I take it just once a day before I exercise now, where I used to take it multiple times a day. And that was scary because I was like, I don't want to lose function. 
Uh, but also, I was so tired of every time I'd say something, my husband or son would go, you mean blah, blah, blah. And I was like, ah, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I, I am still taking that, but just sparingly now. I've been getting Botox injections. I just had my fourth round. So essentially with dystonia, the brain can't stop telling the muscle to fire. And mm -hmm. so that's why you're like, your foot is coming through and it's like kind of rigid and it's tripping you up. And the Botox disrupts that signal. So I mm. still don't have the function of my leg, but it's not stiff. And so that I had been doing, I've been doing that for a year. And then recently I started adding some new things. This fall, I started adding hardcore like strength training throughout my whole body. Because even when mm -hmm. I do run and I feel great, I look very different than I used to. My form has changed. Mm -hmm. And so making sure everything is strong so I don't get a compensatory injury. And then I just started PT with an actual, I didn't even know this existed, neurological PT. Wow. And it's more brain exercises than anything because with dystonia, um, brain wires get crossed. And then I'm also talking to this doctor in California about perhaps doing some deep brain therapy. So I'm trying a lot of things, but I'm trying to just try them all in like three-month chunks so that I know what worked and what didn't. Mm -hmm. um, but I ran 40 miles last week. Wow. And so nice. it's not, it's, you know, I, I would like more, but I'm also trying to live in a space of that's running. That's actually getting out and running. And uh, I still can't run on pavement, which is frustrating because I'd like to be able to run Boulder, Boulder with my son in May, but you know, baby steps. I'm definitely a lot better than I was a year ago. Wow. You mentioned TV. Um, I was going to say that we really enjoyed your commentary at the Tokyo Olympics mm -hmm. during the marathon. Thank you. Commentary. Well, it, it was pretty easy when Molly Seidel was in a position to get a medal. <laughs> it was like, yeah, that's exciting. After that race, that was the first marathon I ever called because the men's was the second day. And you know, I was nervous. It's a long time to fill airspace and I just hadn't done it yet. But thanks to Molly, it was like the easiest gig ever because it was just so exciting. And obviously when you're calling the Olympics, your team world, not team USA, but it helped me to like really have my energy up the whole time. Yeah. You're going to keep doing more TV work. Yeah, I'm pretty sure unless this book gets me fired, um, I'm pretty sure I'm good through Paris 2024. And, you know, I have to say when you retire as a competitive athlete, I've never retired officially because I just mm. think that's crazy. Like, what if I want to go run a race? Who cares? But I think there is, and I felt this, I think, and you guys read the book, I felt like, what is my worth now? I've spent 20 some years just focusing on training and being that best athlete I can be like, what? I don't have any skills. And so this job with NBC has made me feel like I have purpose and I love running. And even though, you know, I've had some really crappy experiences and I know the darker side of the sport, I still can get in that mindset of me being 14 watching Lynn Jennings and I love it. And so being able to commentate has made me feel like I have purpose and I really, really enjoy it. It makes me feel like I get to keep living my love of the sport. So mm -hmm. it's been really fun. And plus the podcast that you co-host, the Clean Sport Collective, and now um, Nobody Asked Us with Des Linden. So I think, you know, you've got a lot on your plate. I mean, plus another book here. Yeah. It's funny. If you ask my son, what does your mom do for a living? He's like, a million things. She has a million jobs. <laughs> and I'm like, none of them are that big. But yes, I love, I hope to be involved in the sport until the day I die. I just mm -hmm. love the sport so much. And I know what it can do for you. And I know what it can do for people and how it can change their lives because it's completely changed mine. And even though some of it was negative, the overwhelming part of it has just been amazing and positive. So I hope to be like my grandpa in my 80s running on an alter G and calling my <laughs> grandchild will be like, yeah, grandma, we know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By that time, every runner will have one in yes, their house. Everyone will have, you know, we used to have one when I was a part of the Oregon Project. And then when I left, they told me I could keep it. So when I was running for Schumacher, I had one in our house. And then when we left to move here, we couldn't move it. We And we were moving into a little apartment and everything. And so we gifted it to the um, Bowerman Track Club. But I got to say, sometimes I wish I still had that. <laughs> a lot of times, actually. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it sure would be fun to feel fast again and take 30 pounds off and let, let it rip. But yeah, don't have it anymore. I haven't had it for a long time. Oh, well, we really enjoyed the book and this and time talking with you. And we encourage yeah. everyone to run out, literally run out and get the longest race there. You're going to love it. Yes. And when you when you said the book might get you fired, I think now people need to go read it, <laughs> see what's in it. That's right. 
Yeah, it's funny. It's it's all the it's the truth. It's what I experienced mm-hmm. from my own words. And you know, somebody asked me, "Is the book controversial?" And I said, "No. It's it's only controversial if you think I'm lying." Mm-hmm. And then I guess it's controversial. But the reality is, this is what I lived through. This is what I experienced. And I'm hoping that by putting this out there, the next generation knows they don't have to put up with that kind of behavior, knows that they mm-hmm. can be believed, knows that it's not their fault if something happens. And literally, I say this, and I, but I genuinely mean it. I will fight for you. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, if people want to connect with you online, Kara, where can we send them? Instagram or Twitter is where I do the most. I do read almost, maybe I won't this week, just depending on <laughs> feedback, but I usually do read all the comments on Instagram and try to and try to connect with people because I think, you know, social media is a whole nother topic and a whole nother podcast we could do. But the good part about it is you can really connect with people. And I really try to use, especially my Instagram as a tool to connect with people. What's the Instagram handle? Um, Kara Goucher at both Twitter and Instagram. Perfect. Everyone check out The Longest Race. Kara, it's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for the respectful dialogue. I appreciate it. This has been fun. All right. Well, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kara Goucher. Big thanks to Kara for speaking to us here on the podcast and sharing her story. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for being a listener. If you haven't officially subscribed to the podcast, let's make it official. Just hit subscribe. Episodes will appear magically right there on your phone. Unless you have a flip phone. I don't know if it'd work for that. There's no magic with flip phones. (laughs) (laughs) We appreciate all of you. And if we can help you in your running journey, please drop us a DM on Instagram. We're at Marathon Academy or shoot us an email through our website, marathontrainingacademy.com. Until next time, be safe out there and remember you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. I could crumble into pieces, but I got a million reasons why I won't. Cause this heavy is a season, and the sun is always right behind the storm.